Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host, and I have in the studio with me Dr. Joseph Piper as we are prepared to tackle some of your questions that you have sent in for Dr. P to answer. Dr. P, would you open us in a word of prayer before we begin? Father in heaven, we bless you and praise your holy name. You are a great God, a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, full of glory, grace, and truth. We thank you that you've given us a word that is inspired and infallible. We thank you that Christ has purchased for us our sonship, as well as the Spirit's work to teach us your word. And We ask that you will teach us as your sons and daughters, that you'll bless our program today, give us insight, make it useful. We ask that you forgive us of our sins. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. P. Before we dive into our questions, I do have one announcement to make on the front end here, and that's with regards to the Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary Summer Institute that we do annually. This year, the dates are July 31st through August 4th. That's Monday night through Friday noon. And Dr. Piper will be teaching, and he'll be focusing on uh, the ordinance of preaching in the church. And particularly, uh, what he'll be doing is taking 10 sermons by prominent uh, contemporary preachers, and you'll be examining them as a class, and uh, kind of against the benchmark of a couple things. Uh, One book, Murray Capel's, uh, I think, Preaching to the Heart, and then as well as Debt or the heart is a target, that's right, as well as Dabney's Evangelical Eloquence, both of them excellent volumes uh, from different eras and worth and worth going into. So keep your eye out for that. For more information, visit our website at gpts.edu. And um, if you have any questions, do not hesitate to contact us here at the seminary. We'd be happy to, to help you out with that. There is a registration form, and um, you know, we're looking forward to having a full classroom again this summer. So, Dr. P, was there anything you wanted to add to that before we dived into the questions? Not to that. Let's simply uh, mention that we'll, you and I will be at the Presbyterian Church in America's General Assembly next week, and we'll be having a breakfast Wednesday morning, and any of our hearers who have not signed up are surely welcome to do so. Also, come by our booth and visit us. Looking forward to seeing some of you men there with your families, perhaps. All right, our first question comes from Chad Warner here in Greenville, and he asks... How did the fall affect humanity's bearing the image of God? How does regeneration affect it? Thank you, Chad. A couple of things, background. One is man is the image of God. He doesn't simply bear the image of God. So our humanness is attached to the fact that we are images of God. God's image in us is in two ways, what I refer to as the broader way. That is our rationality, our uh, volitionality, our ability to make decisions, our rationality, our rationality, our ethical, ethical standards and responsibility. So that's madness. Uh, the fall did not destroy those things. Now they are weakened because of our sinful nature, but man continues uh, to function as the image of God. Even the unconverted man uh, can exercise some dominion in the creation. Our catechisms, though, define the image in terms of the narrow sense, and that is knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. 
the spiritual part then of the image is what was lost in the fall, completely obliterated. And so we're born dead in sins and trespasses. We uh, are ignorant, blind, spiritually dead, separated from God. We are guilty, condemned, uh, and corrupt sinners. In regeneration, uh, God uh, changes our nature by uh, renewing our hearts, our minds, our wills, our affections, so that we uh, now freely choose uh, to come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ indwells us, and God teaches us then through his word so that we are progressively being conformed to the image of Christ. And the image of Christ is the perfect knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So that is, in fact, the goal of our sanctification. Thanks, Dr. P. All right, our next question comes from Josh Morrison, and he sent this in a while back, but we weren't able to tackle it last month. And I, I think I know what your answer is going to be, Dr. Piper. But his question has to do with, is a textual question, which text, the majority, ecclesiastical or critical, do you prefer and why? The majority text and the ecclesiastical text are two words for the same text. Critical text, or the eclectic text, is the way we describe the other text. Uh, a third text is the uh, received text, the Texas Receptus, which is the basis of the King James and the New King James translations of the Bible. Um, because there was no printing press, the Hebrew and Greek texts, now these words I've used describe uh, really the Greek text. The, the Hebrew text is the Masoretic text. But because there were no printing presses, uh, these uh, texts were continually copied by hand, oftentimes by people who didn't even know the language. And they were wrote writing down um, these words. In the original, they were all run together as well. There's, we don't have the nice breaks that we have in uh, our modern uh, Hebrew and Greek text. So in the process, there would be spelling errors and maybe a, a preposition was put in the place of an article V or something like that. But uh, none of those uh, textual errors affect any doctrine in the Bible. So at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter in terms of your handling the Word of God, uh, which of the textual traditions uh, you prefer. Um, the majority text gets its name from the fact that it was compiled from simply the majority of the texts that were in existence that agreed. Most of those were texts from the Eastern Church, which was the Greek-speaking church. Uh, fewer of those found their way into the Western Church. But at the end of the day, that was the majority text. It's also called the Byzantine text. So if you're looking at the textual apparatus, uh, it would be the Byzantine text, again, uh, the center of, of the Greek Church. The uh, critical text uh, comes out of the work of textual criticism. Now, textual criticism is not a wrong thing. It's simply the effort to compare the different textual traditions in terms of, of geographical location and uh, 
what is dependent on each of those traditions. And as I said, our modern Bibles outside of New King James, the ESV, the New American Standard, and the uh, NIV are all based on that uh, critical text. Uh, Prutz Metzger, in his work on textual criticism, points out that at this point now, we have basically 999 out of every thousand words as they were in the original. You might ask, why didn't God just leave the original? But we would have done with the original what was done with the, um, uh, the brazen serpent and other things. We would have turned them into idols. And so God uh, spared us that temptation. The Textus Receptus was a text put together by Erasmus in the early 16th century. He had very little textual uh, manuscripts to work from. Um, at places, he had only Latin versions, and so there's some things that actually are not in any Greek text that we know of today. For example, the Trinitarian statement in, in 1 John is something that Erasmus got out of his head or, or somewhere else. The, the, the uh, Textus Receptus is more closely related to the majority text, but we need to understand they're not the same. The Textus Receptus, then, uh, is probably the, not as reliable as the majority text, which is interesting when you get the King James-only people. They're operating from a text they often refer to as the majority text, but if you'll uh, look at the notes in the New King James Bible, it will show you where the um, King James, New King James differs um, with the uh, majority text. Uh, in the Hebrew, the Masoretic text was the text put together by the rabbis, I think, in the 10th century. And uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls have greatly verified uh, the authenticity of the Masoretic text. I, at this point, prefer the majority text um, <laughs> simply um, because it seems to be the, uh, the church's consistent witness. Now, some people will argue for the majority text on the basis of a statement in the Westminster Confession of Faith on the text of Scripture, chapter 1, paragraph 8. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. Now, there are those that argue, because the majority text is the majority, that it is the best expression of God's preservation of the text. But interestingly, we don't really have a majority text tradition from the first four centuries. And so uh, does that mean the church did not have a preserved text at that time? It doesn't mean they weren't in existence. Uh, and the way I reason that is that the majority text would have been the really used text. And so being written on uh, papyrus, uh, they would have worn out. And so it's 
more difficult to have preserved the text that was being used regularly, whereas these texts that go back are, are portions of papyrus or manuscripts that go back before then. Well, the reason they were preserved was they weren't really in use. So it's a very simplistic answer. At the end of the day, whichever you use, um, you can be certain that you're reading a good facsimile of the inspired text. And when we use the word infallibility, we mean that what is taught in our Greek and Hebrew text is without error God's message to us, not just with respect to doctrine, but everything it teaches. Geography, but makes scientific statements or whatever. Now, there is no majority text translation of the Bible. As I said, the New King James or the King James comes the closest to the majority text. But at this point, even though I read in the Greek the majority text, I prefer to use the um, New American Standard Bible uh, because I find it to be uh, the best um, translation of the Greek text. And so if there is any kind of serious difference with the majority text, I'll point out that maybe the New King James translates this this way or whatever. Um, but uh, I find it to be very faithful translation. Some people say it's wooden, but I would challenge those that hear me read the text and worship in any way to distinguish between uh, the literary quality of that text or the literary quality of the English Standard Version. I'm in full agreement with that. We used um, the New American Standard just for what it's worth. We used the New American Standard in my home church in Pennsylvania where we had folks from 25 different nations in our membership. I would say most of the congregation had uh, some language other than English as their native tongue, and nobody, at least nobody, indicated any difficulty with the New American Standard. And we use them in Sunday schools, we use them in um, in fellowship gatherings, in prayer meetings, and in in the worship service and in the youth group. And it seemed that everybody was able to handle it pretty well, um, though there were certain folks here from the states who who wanted. Uh, maybe to switch to an easier to read translation or something of the like. But um, I generally prefer the New American Standard. But that being said, the ESV is a fine translation as well, as are some others. So, Our next question comes from Hans Saunders of Bentonville, Arkansas. And his question, very interesting. It's a very practical question. Hans asks, what would you say are some of the greatest challenges in raising a son, but also some of the greatest rewards? What particular dangers are there for us as fathers to avoid in raising our sons and other children in the instruction and admonition of the Lord? And a final question, do you have any practical encouragement for family worship with a 15-month-old boy? <laughs> Thank you, Hans. Um, I think the some of the greatest challenges in raising a son today in the covenant is um, the failure to have a blueprint, a goal for what a godly man is to be, to look at scripture and, and determine that, yes, he's to be godly and holy. He is to live a life of purity. But there seems to be certain characteristics in terms of reliability, faithfulness, uh, courage, uh, sacrifice, diligence, 
uh, a proper kind of confidence that these things are missing today, it seems to me, in many young men, even in our churches. And so books like Riles, uh, uh, I forget letters, I forget the exact title of it, but you can easily find Riles' book, Addresses to Young Men. Uh, there's some other older books like that that are available. But you can do your own work. You go through scripture, look at the qualifications, the characteristics of uh, men like uh, Noah, Abraham, and Joshua, and Caleb, and Moses, and uh, David, and and men in the New Testament, and uh, put together some of those characteristics. Of course, the reward is when you see a young man becoming, in the proper sense of the term, self-sufficient, able to uh, make his way, to make good decisions, godly decisions, uh, to be responsible, to um, be serving God and his fellow men in church and in society. Um, those are are great rewards. Um, in raising all of our children, our goal needs to be that they are godly, mature decision makers. And so the goal in our nurturing of our children is that as they're little, we have to make a lot of decisions for them. As they get older, particularly into their teen years, is to let them make decisions while they're with us so that uh, we can uh, help them when they make some bad decisions. Jay Adams makes the difference between what he called a stove issue and a swing issue. They might get some bumps and bruises in the swing, but the stove could do them irreparable damage. And so we want to see them by the time they leave home, either to go to trade school or to uh, college or university or to start their or, or work or do apprenticeship or whatever, that um, they are making their own decisions and are making godly decisions. The, I think the, one of the great dangers today uh, in our circles is the failure to go for the heart. In my own case, I think that was a big problem with my children. We want to nurture their hearts um, to develop in them a real experimental uh, piety and godliness. Family worship with the little one. Uh, Start with Bible story book. Uh, don't use one with pictures of Christ, but have Bible story book that have bright colored pictures. Start teaching them the children's catechism uh, at that age and sing um, little um, good uh, Bible choruses and such. Help them begin to memorize as they get a little older then some of the things that we use in worship, the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's never too early to start. Even before 15 months old, we have them there when we pray and sing and read. And it's a part of their daily uh, existence. And then as they get older, we will increase uh, the input that we have. Yeah, my son is going to be turning two really just in a in about a week and um it is a difficult thing to do family worship with a with a child under the age of 2 i mean it's really a difficult thing to do family worship until they're about 4 4 and a half 
um, because there's so many distractions that get pulled in. But uh, when they're when they're really young, when they can't even recognize words on a page or carry a tune or anything like that, the key is, and it's difficult, but you you mustn't shy away from um, exercising discipline. And and so there's two there's two ends of this. Your expectation should be that they're not going to be able to be held that long um, when they're 15 months old. So you want to keep family worship very brief. And uh, you don't want to aggravate them by having an overly long family worship. So ours in my household, and it's different household to household, but at least around the Groff's dinner table, our family worship time is is really no more than 15 minutes and generally closer to 10. And that's engaging enough for our, my six-year-old, and that's, um, and that's sufferable enough for my, uh, for my two-year-old. And then the other end of it is when there's a major disruption— when, when your infant disrupts family worship, you want to teach him or her that that's inappropriate, that that is not tolerated. And so you discipline them lovingly, tenderly, of course, but um, usually mommy, uh, in our case, so my wife, will take Judah, that's my son, into another room and uh, discipline him for disrupting family worship. And we do the same for our three-year-old and our six-year-old as well at this point. And really, you have a view here of training them for corporate worship, Um because you want to be able to bring them into corporate worship as early as you can. Some folks uh, are, are, some families are able to do this right from the get-go, where they're never taking their children to nursery, and I commend them for it. But other families, myself included, usually have the child in nursery until about two or three, and then transition them into corporate worship. And it's a blessing to the saints, it's a blessing to the family and to the child, and um, being able to have the whole family there in worship is is a great boon, I think. You know, my, my rule of thumb on the child in worship, one thing is we can teach them at home to uh, sit still for increasingly long periods of time. But basically what I say is between 1 and 18 to 24 months, a child by nature is going to be moving and making noises. That's part of the development. And that's the period of time that I think that uh, we could use the cry room uh, with mom or dad sitting with the child. But I, I think it too, a uh, child can come back into worship and, and learn to do well. Thank you for the great practical question about raising a son. Now, every year, the Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, some of our faculty and students and board members will attend the Banner of Truth Conference. And we always have a great time there uh, connecting with graduates of the seminary, with supporters of the seminary, with uh, supporting churches, at least their pastors and some of their ruling elders. And we generally have a supper together or lunch on the Wednesday of the conference. And this year we did it at supper time. We had a room set aside from the main cafeteria where I would say about 30 to 40 of us gathered. It was cramped quarters, but it was a uh, it was good time of fellowship together. And um, this year we even had a number of prospective students I would say a handful, about four or five prospective students, some of whom I hadn't met before. And we're very excited by that. We're encouraged by it. The growth of the Banner Conference is, um, is a wonderfully encouraging thing to us as well. This year there were some excellent speakers. Um, we had Jonathan Master, who's the executive editor for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and he delivered two talks. And the theme was on the sufficiency of Scripture. And then Carlton Wynn from Westminster Theological Seminary delivered a message. William Van Dudeward from Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary and um, Craig Troxell gave a short message. 
and uh, Jeff Thomas stepped up to the plate three times, just three excellent sermons uh, directed to the heart on, on the sufficiency of Scripture. And I believe those talks are available online, certainly available for purchase. Yes, so they're on YouTube. Oh, and, and Dr. Joel Beakey from Puritan Reform Seminary also also gave um, also gave a couple of, of helpful lectures or, or talks on Puritan preaching, what to imitate, what, what not to imitate in our day and age. So I encourage you to check out the talks. And if you can join us next year, we'd love to have you uh, join us for the supper as well. It is a conference only open to men, and it's really geared towards pastors and elders of the church and, um, and seminary students, men in pursuit of ministry. But if you're able to be there with us, we would welcome you around the table for fellowship and uh, the week of June 29th next year. And they're going to have some really great speakers next year as well. They always do. They always do, especially when they have men from Greenville speaking. But uh, I don't think we're, we're in the lineup next year. So our next question, thank you again, Hans. Our next question comes from Abe Johnson from Greenville, Pennsylvania. And Abe was with us during our conference this past spring. And he asks, to what extent does union with Christ apply to the non-elect in the covenant of grace? Thank you very much, Abe. Uh, in no way whatsoever. I think this is one of the um, errors in the teaching of some uh, people who hold to the uh, doctrine of federal vision that we might get to later uh, today. <coughs> Union with Christ is uh, premised on our election. So we're chosen in Christ. In the fullness of time, Christ then came as the second Adam and acted on behalf of all those who were chosen for him and only for them. And then when we are regenerated and we believe in Christ, uh, the scripture teaches that we then come into a living union with Christ. And that is secured by the Holy Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, bringing us in union really with the triune God. That's union with Christ. Some federal vision people teach that the non-elect are in union with Christ until they apostatize, and that is nowhere found in Scripture. Now, there is a legal um, membership in the covenant of community in the church. Not all those that are in the church are uh, converted are going to be converted, but they still have covenant privileges being in the church uh, in a legal uh, and structured way, but not in the internal sense that comes only to those who are in union with Christ. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by in a legal way? They they partake of some of the privileges of being in the church? Well, yes. Our children have the right to pray. Uh, we encourage them to pray. We encourage them to read the scriptures. They're under the preaching of the word and corporate worship. And the people that pray, uh, they're taught uh, the promises of God and their heirs of those promises and that God has has said that he would be their God and their responsibility then is to take hold of him uh, in a living way <coughs> by faith. <coughs> now the same holds true for um, an adult who makes a profession of faith and is baptized and comes into the church uh, and the end of the day proves that he was not regenerate. He still has lived under those privileges of being a part of the people of God, and there are many other uh, privileges as well. Let's look at the book of Proverbs. 
uh, even in an external way. External is another word that's used for membership. In an external way, there are many blessings to the one whose life is structured according to the covenant wisdom and covenant law. And so there are blessings, but at the end of the day, uh, they don't have Christ, and so they remain unconverted. Got it. Thanks, Dr. P. And thank you, Abe, for a really good question. I think I know where that's coming from. So I hope that that answer was helpful. And, of course, there's more resources to dig into. Um, the answer that we've that Dr. P has given is not exhaustive, though it does address the question directly. Now, our next question comes from Sam Frain. He's a licentiate in Heritage Presbytery, and he's uh, asking a question from Dover, Delaware. And he says, why do you not subscribe to exclusive psalmody, and why do you sing hymns in corporate worship? Great question. Very important question. I'm going to tie in a, a, a uh, two questions down, number seven as well, from Jared Lowe, who writes from Winter Haven, Florida. We use this question as the background. Given the many variances within Presbyterian Reformed churches regarding exclusive psalmody, observance of holy days, etc., can you explain how the regular principle of worship is to be rightly understood and applied? So I want to start with the broader question uh, and move to Sam's more specific question. We need to understand what the regular principle of worship is. And this is taught many places in Scripture. The foundation places in the second commandment spelled out then in the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith and Catechisms, particularly the larger catechism, 109, chapters 1, 20, and 21, I think, in the Confession. The regular principle says that we may and must do in worship those things that are revealed to us uh, by God that he wants done in worship. So these are the elements of worship. And uh, those who are faithful to Scripture and the Reformed faith believe that we should worship God in this way and this way only. Now, connected with elements, there's two other things called circumstances and form. And the Confession addresses those in Chapter 1, Paragraph 6. Circumstances are the things that, that we do in order to perform the elements. So... There are things common to any group that gathers for corporate occasions. You have to have a time, a place, a duration. You have to have a, uh, a, a seating of some sort, uh, on and on and on. Uh, forms of the contents of our prayers and our preaching, and I would say of our singing. The forms must always be uh, biblical. Now, in the great majority of the discussion of the elements of worship, there is a unanimity, both historically and currently, among Reformed people, people who hold to the Westminster Standards and the three forms of unity, uh, a great deal of uniformity as to what is it that God wants in worship. And we derive those principles, those elements, by the direct revelation or by what's called good and necessary inference or consequence. So what the Bible teaches, A, and B, and C, maybe the Bible doesn't always relate those three things together, but A relates to C and B relates to A, then we know that this is a truth taught in Scripture. So we agree on the great majority. 
The few areas almost exclusively where there's disagreement is in the area of uh, music, uh, both in terms of what we sing and whether we are to have uh, non-lyrical musical instruments playing in the corporate worship. I'm not talking about a prelude or a postlude, but offertories or things like that, whether we use choirs and special music or not. This is where we have differences. And the important issue to keep in mind in discussing these is that regardless of one's position, he needs to be convinced this is what Scripture requires me to do. It can't be that Scripture doesn't forbid something. That gets back to Luther's principle, which was called the normative principle of worship. And as long as the Bible doesn't forbid it, we can do it. But we, we, we can't stop there because God is an infinite, holy, uh, transcendent being. And we cannot begin to imagine what pleases him unless he reveals that to us. So we will have differences, but they can be honest differences of interpretation. Let me make the analogy of church government or of infant or believer's baptism. Uh, we're all operating on the same scriptures uh, with many of the same principles, and we've come to uh, some different conclusions. And so it's the same, not as broadly different as these other areas, but it is surely um, a, a parallel. And so, yeah, we'll have some differences. And the important thing is that a church is seeking uh, to worship God according to the regular principle of worship. And not to make issues out of them. For example, I think that all believers are the choir in the New Testament. And I think that we should not have special choirs um, in the uh, in New Testament worship. I've pastored a church that had a choir. I now attend a church uh, that has a choir. And at the church that I attend, the elders are convinced that the Bible requires them to use a choir in the worship of God. So I'm not going to make an issue out of that. Now, the more serious issue does get to the matter of what is called exclusive psalmody. To get back to Sam's question, um, and why I do not subscribe to exclusive psalmody. The position of exclusive psalmody is that the Bible requires us to sing psalms out of the 150 psalms exclusively in our corporate worship. Now, within that group, <laughs> there can be differences of opinion. I have a colleague who believes in corporate worship one must sing psalms, but in other activities as Christians gather, family worship, our chapel at the seminary, and one hymns uh, as well. Um, others will only sing psalms in any expression of a musical worship, whether it's private or corporate. And sometimes people from my position wrongly make light of that position. They're really weighty arguments defending the position. And we need to study uh, those 
arguments. Uh, a book I recommend is David Bushell uh, on the use, uh, the required use of psalms exclusively in in the church. But there are a number of reasons that I believe not only that I may sing hymns, but I must sing hymns. See, that must be the difference. Uh, I just read some other day singing, I'm convinced I may sing hymns. Well, no, that's not the regular principle of worship. Uh, we must be convinced that we, God reveals to us to sing hymns as well as psalms. I'm going to run down a quick list of arguments, but I have a lecture, uh, Sam and other listeners, on Sermon Audio uh, that you can go get and listen to that because you're not going to have time to really digest all of this. First, the, the psalms that are being sung today are metrical in form so that they rhyme and are, are in rhythm, and thus they're not literal translations of the scripture, and they're often they're very paraphrastic. So you're not really singing the word of God. Uh, you're singing this musical variation of the words of God. Uh, more importantly, there are no scriptural, there's no scriptural warrant. Now, this one always raises a lot of eyebrows. There's no scriptural warrant for the exclusive use of the Psalter in worship. The mere existence of the Psalter is not in itself a revelation or commandment that that's all that we are to sing. In fact, the Psalter is not simply a hymn book. It is more akin to the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. It's a book of prayers and songs. The internal evidence of the Psalter points to this designation. The Psalter contains three types of poetry, praise, exhortations to praise, and prayers. And we may sing all of these types, but some are written as exhortations to praise God. So the, the words themselves are not uh, the content, so to speak, of a hymn, but they are exhortations to praise God in song, uh, to praise God for his attributes. Others are clearly prayers, and they're noted as prayers. And I would add here to note the close relation between singing and praying. The people who hold to exclusive psalmody want to distinguish uh, that uh, uh, praying is a distinct element completely from singing. And I would say, and for example, Calvin uh, says this as well in the Institutes, I would say that uh, singing is a form of praying and thus really is regulated in the same way that praying is. So we're to sing the broad truths of Scripture. Third, the Psalter is not sufficient for the comprehensive worship of God. In the Old Testament, we find hymns of praise in use before the Psalter that are not recorded in the Psalter, Exodus 15 or 1 Samuel 10. In the Old Testament, after David, we find references to praise music not in the Psalter. In Isaiah 38:30. And gratitude to God for his healing. He, uh, Hezekiah says, we will play my music on stringed instruments at the house of God. And the exclusive psalmist position says that the Hebrew word for play and my music refers to accompaniment. 
That does not seem to catch the emphasis of Hezekiah's thanksgiving. Moreover, the verbal form of this word is used of lyrical music, not just non-lyrical music, Psalm 33, Psalm 23. The noun is used, a number of psalm titles, for songs. And so Hezekiah, as an act of thanksgiving, composed um, songs for worship that are apparently not in the Psalter. Isaiah 42, 10 through 12, the writer exhorts the Gentiles to praise God in song, and the Septuagint uses, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the word hymnos for him. No reference to their using the Psalter, and Habakkuk composed to him to be used in the temple in Habakkuk 3, 19. These references teach that the Psalter was never the only hymn book of the Old Testament. We should not be surprised to discover that the Psalter was not sufficient for New Testament praise. Where do angels get praise for the advent? Where do Mary and Zechariah get their praise? They compose new hymns appropriate for significant new event. The exclusive psalmists respond that those events were not corporate worship, and some say that those words were not sung. There's no demonstrably tight connection between the Psalter and corporate worship. Pilgrims sang songs of ascent out of the Psalter as they went up to Jerusalem. And often the, word, often the word say is used in scripture for singing. Moreover, Psalms have an old covenant theology that at times needs to be interpreted, sacrifices and musical instruments. And so Psalms need to be interpreted in light of their fulfillment. This necessitates an Isaac Watts approach to the Psalms, where he seeks to um, bring Christ more evidently uh, into the Psalms. The history of redemption also demands that we sing more than psalms. The height of Christ's mediatorial glory is that he's to be praised as Jesus, Philippians 2. One cannot praise him by this name in the psalms. This is part of his glory to praise him as Jesus, Jehovah saves. What a name. It's his personal name, just as Jehovah is the personal name of the triune God. We're also commanded to praise God with new song. Now, a new song is a song growing out of a new experience of redemption. Both objective and subjective acts of redemption demand a response of new song. The new song may be an existent song applied to the new situation, or as we see in Revelation, a song newly composed to express the new experience. And the worship in the New Testament church seems to have used songs of praise in addition to the Psalter. 1 Corinthians 14, 15 and 26, that people are to bring a psalms to the worship service. So the word psalms in itself in Greek simply means praising God in, musical, uh, in music, particularly with musical accompaniment. And there are traces of primitive Christian poems or hymns found in the New Testament. For example, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In the book of Revelation, the church used hymns, not from the Psalter. Chapters 5, 14, and 15. Song of Moses, Song of the Lamb. This pictures the worship of the church in this age. And we have here an expressly Christological model for earthly worship, particularly fulfilling the prophecy I alluded to in Isaiah 42:10. Why should we not sing on earth what they're singing in heaven? since this is given to us for our instruction. 
Ephesians 5.18, Colossians 3.16 and 17, Paul seems to teach us to sing more than psalms. This statement will seem strange because the exclusive psalmist proponents use these verses to prove their case. Now, it's true that all three of the words used there, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, are used in titles in the various psalms, but they're never used together to express the book of psalms. It's always called the book of psalms, or referred to as a book. Uh, others will say, well, the response in this exhortation doesn't apply to corporate worship because there's a reflexive speaking to yourselves, not to one another. Yet the plural points to a corporate context and the reflection, reflexive may yourselves may be used for one another, particularly with words of instruction or admonition. See Hebrews 3.13. Notice as well in Colossians that we're singing the word of Christ. Now, Christ is the author of all scripture, but this could be more. This can be the word about Christ. And then simply to allude to the historical arguments, um, because the exclusive psalmist uh, like to point out that the early church sang nothing but psalms. But Philip Schaff um, gives a number of references from the early church's use of hymns. Tertullian in his Apology wrote of hymns. That's in his Apology, chapter 39. Each is asked to stand forth and sing, as he can, a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. Clement of Alexandria has a hymn to Christ. Ignatius speaks of the church praising Christ using musical terms. I can go on and on and on. It doesn't prove my point, but it simply shows that uh, their point is wrong. They say the early church sang only psalms. What about the Reformation? Uh, the Strasbourg liturgy included hymns. Perel and Nucatel service books sang creed and the hymn, the constant hymn book. Um, used in Basel as late as 1581, uh, included a number of selections that were not uh, psalms. And Beza's description of worship in Strasbourg, uh, there, thereupon the whole congregation sing a few short psalms or hymns after the Lord's Supper. And then after the Lord, and then psalms and hymns, and then he said after the Lord's Supper, the congregation sing again a hymn of praise. And so I probably told you a lot more, Sam, than you wanted to hear, but it's very important. And you can see from this that I believe that we must sing hymns. I respect highly, have many close friends that believe we should only sing psalms. And I think that those men uh, respect me as well. They recognize I'm coming, trying to come from an exegetical position. Well, it's a long answer, but as I said, you can go on Sermon Audio and, and hear uh, a more full uh, lecture on this topic. And it is, um, it is one, it is an issue that you can be in full subscription with the standards and be either inclusive psalmody and hymnody, as Dr. P's position is, or be exclusive psalmody. Is that right, Dr. Piper? It is. Um, there's a, a great deal of, in fact, I'm supposed to be writing a, a short book on this topic uh, that uh, there's a, a good bit of evidence that the Puritans uh, did not mean to sing psalms exclusively, but that we are to sing psalms. But even if the confession does mean psalms exclusively, that's what we call a, uh, 
not an, an exception, but merely a, a minor difference, an exegetical difference with the doctrine. The doctrine taught is the regular principle of worship that we must only sing what the scripture reveals. And uh, if we believe that that point, the confession is exegesis, is flawed, then we're not denying the doctrine, and we still are full subscriptionists. Well, thank you, Sam, and thank you, Jared, and others. We had a, a lot of questions come in over the last couple of weeks uh, re- with regards to exclusive psalmody and the regulative principle of worship. This next question from Anna Height of Newark, Delaware, also uh, deals with the regulative principle, and she asks, or uh, prompts us to please explain the biblical reasons for why pastors raise their hands when giving the apostolic greeting and benediction, but unordained folks aren't, quote, allowed, end quote, to do so. Would it be appropriate for the congregation to correspondingly hold out their hands as if to receive God's blessing at those times? Excellent question, Anna. Thank you. Yes, it is. Um, <coughs> we'll back it up one step, Anna. Um, it's not just that unordained are not allowed to raise their hands. They're not allowed to give the benediction. They pray the benediction. So if it's not a, a, a minister, a teaching elder, uh, leading our at the worship service, the benediction may be prayed. And that's because uh, we tie both the opening apostolic greeting and the benediction to the office of preaching. These are authoritative declarations of God's word. And we see that in chapter 6, where we have a full theology of the benediction. Actually, God's name is invoked and placed upon the people. And so only the minister may um, declare uh, these apostolic, this apostolic greeting and the benediction. The raising of hands, we know in Scripture that Blessings are conferred by the raising of hands. And so it, that is a matter of posture. And the open hand uh, is a symbol then that God is pouring out this salutation and particularly this closing benediction on the congregation. So it's only given by the minister. And the minister lifts his hands and should lift them high, not to his waist, uh, as the symbol of the outpouring of the blessing. Now, I think it is appropriate for the congregation to hold their hands palm up, waist high, as a posture that expresses faithful reception of the blessing. My problem is that it's not being done corporately. I would like to do it, but the people in my congregation don't do it. And I think that Posture is very important, and we should use much more uh, various biblical postures in our worship, uh, but we should do so corporately. And so what we want are ministers that will teach the people uh, to exercise this particular posture as an act of faith. Yes, I am receiving the benediction. Thanks, Dr. P. That, that is helpful. And I, Anna, again, that's a thoughtful question. It's not a question that we really see pop up very often. So thank you for asking it. Our next question. Um, all right. Ricky Rolden of Winter Haven, Florida asks, is federal vision heresy? Yes or no? Well, I got in a lot of trouble when we had our first open debate on this at um, the conference in Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, 
where I called it heresy. I'm more convinced today that it's heresy than I was then. It's heresy because it eschews the way, um, it skewers the way that a person comes into a saving knowledge of Christ. I think there's two levels of heresy, and we did cover this last month. There's soul-damning heresy, um, and then there are heresies that are clearly contradictions of Scripture or the confession, but do not in and of themselves subject a person to uh, damnation. I, th I think federal vision, at the end of the day, if the people say you must trust in Christ and him alone to your acceptance with God, uh, is not a soul-damning heresy. But I do think it's heresy because it's redefinitions of the covenant, of the nature of justification. Now, those that would redefine justification as faithfulness um, and not faith alone, I would say they've moved over under the soul-damning uh, aspect, that they teach a justification that's through faith and works. I'll be glad for people to follow up on that question. Yeah, we usually have questions dealing with Federal Vision every month um, because it's such a big issue and we welcome them. There are also a number of resources that the seminary has available. Um, dealing with this particular issue and other books and anthologies that Dr. Piper in particular has contributed to. There's a recent book, a more of a historical study, done by a friend of the seminaries. And um, I believe Bill Hill, my predecessor as a podcast host, interviewed um, him last year. And that's Dewey Roberts, yeah. And he um, has a book. It's not just history, it's a theological discussion of federal vision. Yes, this is true. But written from the perspective of someone that was intimately involved in some of the ecclesiastical cases in the PCA regarding it. So there's an element of history and journalism along with the theology, and it, it really brings it to life um, since it's a recent issue. So Joshua Morrison of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, this is his second question for this month, asks, why did the PCA adopt a good faith subscription? I left the PCUSA in 2008, and especially after reading through Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, the compromise on subscription is what led to the flood of godless officers into the church and his previous denomination. So what about the PCA, Dr. P? Well, Josh, uh, this is not the kindest answer, but basically good faith subscription was adopted because uh, there were too many men in the denomination did not want to be bound uh, by all the doctrines of the confession of faith. They wanted a liberty, which is completely contrary uh, to what confessionalism is all about. And so to create that liberty, they came up with good faith subscription which has simply opened a relativistic box. Each presbytery will determine at what level a man's differing positions with the confession are allowed or not. Presbyteries can differ on that. So you could have a man approved uh, in one presbytery to try to transfer into my presbytery, and he'd be rejected because we see that his position as uh, contrary to uh, standards. So it's, it's a relativism. It is going to lead to liberalism. I think the whole progressive movement, um, some stuff that was released recently with respect to the agenda of some of these people of making the church broader, this is not a Johnny-come-lately strategy. 
I think this is all part of a strategy to make the PCA broader. I can say in grace and love that if this is what uh, these men want, then there are denominations such as the EPC that they could go to that are more broadly um, confessional with respect to the Westminster standards. But it bothers me greatly that they're trying to um, change the very nature of a denomination that had three mottos, the middle one, the first one based on scripture, the second one uh, uh, faithful to the Westminster standards, and the third to evangelism. And so they've actually gone at the very foundation of the denomination. That began with good faith subscription. Now, realistically, good faith subscription only put an a name on what was being done already in too many Presbyteries. Thanks, Dr. P. And there is a helpful article written by one of our graduates, Nick Batsig, on, um, conf- on unity in the PCA and how the Westminster standards and, and uh, holding them, upholding them, really promotes unity. And this effort at good faith subscription actively works against unity. In the PCA, it does unfortunately, it does. you know, and I don't think it's intended that way, but that's what the result is. You, like Doctor P said, you end up with presbyteries that are wildly different one from another, and uh, men who can't even transfer their credentials within the denomination uh, because because of this very issue. So I think that brings us up on our time, Doctor P, and I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and answer some questions from our listeners. I appreciate all of our listeners, including the 19 or 20 who are listening live right now, um, at least what I can see on, uh, on my dashboard here, for tuning in. And I hope and trust that this, this particular segment was useful to you. For those of you who aren't listening live, uh, remember to uh, keep an eye out for, uh, for our social media updates as to when we are broadcasting. We're going to uh, make this uh, a regular time at 2.30 p.m., on generally the first Monday, first or second Monday of every month. So please keep a lookout and keep on sending us your questions. We, uh, we enjoy them, we appreciate them, and uh, we really do hope that this is helpful to you. Dr. P., would you give a parting word for us? Yes, I'm sorry that we only got through uh, a fourth of the questions today, but I, I did spend a good bit of time on uh, exclusive psalmody and hymns uh, I don't normally devote that much time to a question, but because there were been so many questions in this area, I believe that we'll make a, we'll go a lot more quickly next month. Try to get through uh, all of your questions, and we can always do a, a second edition uh, to get caught up. So don't quit sending us questions because we do want to answer all of them. And with that, without further ado, have a great day. And until next time, this was Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. God bless.